Last time we talked about the new covenant in the prophecy of Daniel. This time we are going to be talking about the new covenant in the prophecies of Hosea and of Malachi. As we do this, we should remember that the prophet Hosea preceded Daniel in the history of the nation of Israel. Daniel belongs, of course, to the time of the captivity in Babylon, but Hosea belonged to the period of the two kingdoms. He prophesied during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. So before the, either one of the kingdoms had been taken into captivity. And when we get to Malachi, we have to understand that Malachi comes after Daniel. Malachi belongs to the post-captivity period. The last, he is the very last of the prophets of the Old Testament, chronologically speaking. So we're going back into the time of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah here in the prophecy of Hosea. And God is prophesying in these first two chapters of Hosea against the unfaithfulness of his people under that common figure of the marriage. Uh, God is the husband and his people are his wife. And God uh, sets before his people through the prophet Hosea a symbol of this relationship. He commands Hosea to take a wife of harlotry, a wife for himself who is similar, therefore, to the wife God took for himself, a wife who is not faithful. Hosea had children by this wife. The first was named Jezreel. Jezreel was a name for the northern kingdom of the tribe of Israel, and God says in connection with that son, that he is going to avenge the blood of Jezreel and the house of Jehu. Jehu was the one who killed all the descendants of the house of Ahab and ended the dynasty of Ahab in the kingdom of Israel. He also says he's going to bring an end to the kingdom of Israel, that northern kingdom. The second child that uh, Hosea had by his wife was named Lo-Ruhamah not having obtained mercy. And God says, I will not have mercy for Israel, but I will have mercy for Judah. And the third child Hosea had was called Lo-Ami, not my people. And that one's, a, I think, of particular interest here because, of course, one of the promises of God in his covenant with Abraham and with Israel was, you shall be my people. And here he is saying through this uh, action of the prophet, this symbolic action of the prophet, you, Israel, are not my people. He is, in a sense, rejecting his covenant promise. But as we go down further in Hosea chapter 1, we find the God... God then saying to his people, but that's not the end of the matter. So in verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. That's a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. I will make your seed as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand, which is by the seashore. 
God is going to keep his covenant with them, in other words. He's going to say to them, it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So though he called them lo ami, he is going to call them ami again, my people. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. I think that's a prophecy of Christ. And they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. And I think chapter 2 verse 1 also belongs with those verses of promise in the end of chapter 1. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. That is, Hosea is to proclaim to the people, you are my people, you will obtain mercy. You are Ami, you are Ruhama. So he named them first Lo-Ami and Lo-Ruhama, and now he is changing their name to Ami and Ruhama. So that's the, the first part of the prophecy. And there's clear references to his covenant with Israel there. Then in chapter 2, verse 2 and following, God begins to pronounce judgment on Israel again for her unfaithfulness. And there are descriptions in there of Israel's unfaithfulness, how wicked she was in her worship of other gods, and also of uh, the judgments that God is going to bring on her for this unfaithfulness. We won't go into the details of that, but we should note that they recall for us the details that we saw in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's very well possible, in fact, that Ezekiel 16, which came later, of course, was based in part on this prophecy in Hosea chapter 2. But notice now that he says in verse 4, I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. So he's using again that word, lo ruhama. And in verse um, uh, 5, her unfaithfulness, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. So there's unfaithfulness, there's judgment again in this um, part of the prophecy. But again, when you get down to verse 14 in chapter 2, you find God reversing himself, as it were. He first talks about judgment, and then he talks about mercy. In verse 13, he concludes his pronouncing of judgment. I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, says the Lord. But what is the Lord going to do in response to her forgetting? Will he forget her? And the answer is in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. So he says, I'm not going to forget her. Though I have said of her, lo Ruhama and lo Ami, nevertheless, I 
will not forget her. I will bring her into the wilderness, a place of safety. I will speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. That valley of Achor is a reference to the valley where the people of Israel stoned Achan after he stole dedicated things from the city of Jericho. And that valley of Achor became a door of hope for Israel because sin was removed from the congregation by the stoning of of Achan, and they then won the second battle of Ai. God says, I'm going to deal with my people now in that very same way, where they experienced sorrow because of my judgments upon them. I am going to make a door of hope for them. The valley of Achor will become a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land. In that day, says the Lord, you will call me husband and instead of master. And he says, verse 17, note this especially, I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. He says then to his people Israel, I'm going to take the names of the Baals from your mouth. You're no longer going to be worshiping those idols. I will make you to me a faithful wife. And this is especially emphasized then in the actual covenant making, which follows in verses 17 and following, 18 and following, excuse me. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. He's saying, I'm going to bring you back to your land and I'm going to give you safety and peace there in the land. Verse 19, further promises of this new covenant. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So he says, I'm going to take you back as my wife, but this time when I take you back, I'm going to do it in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy and in faithfulness. This is righteousness and justice, loving kindness and mercy and faithfulness for the people that exceeds the righteousness and justice of the covenant he made with them at Sinai. He is going to make his people be a faithful wife to him, and they will know him, and that know has all the intimacy of the marriage relationship in it. So that's another promise of the covenant. You will be my wife, and I will be your husband. You shall know me, and you shall know me in righteousness, justice, loving kindness, mercy, and faithfulness. Then he promises further blessings in verses 21 and following. The, the blessings of prosperity in the land, essentially. The heavens are going to cry out to him and the Lord will answer the heavens. But the heavens are crying out to him because the earth is crying out to the heavens. And so as the Lord answers the heavens, the heavens will be able to answer the earth. But the earth is crying out to the heavens because the grain and the new wine and the oil have failed from the earth. And as the heavens answer the earth, 
The earth answers with grain, new wine, and oil for the people. And the earth is answering because Jezreel is crying out, as it were, to the earth for these crops. And the earth's response then is to give grain, new wine, and oil. But it begins with God. God answers the heavens. The heavens answer the earth. The earth answers with grain, new wine, and oil. And they answer the cry of Jezreel. So it's prosperity in the land. And that, I think, we can say, carries over to the promise of the new creation for God's people in the New Testament. Now in verse 23... Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people, and they shall say, You are my God. Again, God goes back to those two children, Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami in chapter 1, and he says, You will no longer be Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami. You will be Ruhama. And Ami, you will be those who have obtained mercy. You will be my people, and I will be your God. So that's the promise that God made to his people in connection with this covenant. And it's connected, very obviously connected, with his covenant with Abraham and his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Because it's in those covenants that God spoke of being the God of his people and of they being his people. But now, notice what the New Testament does with this prophecy. If we did not have the New Testament, we would probably never make this connection. But the New Testament takes this prophecy of Hosea and it applies it to the Gentiles. The first passage where we find that is in Romans chapter 9. And what we want to do here in Romans chapter 9 is begin at verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So Paul is saying God has had mercy on both Jews and Gentiles. He has made known the riches of his glory on them. And in order to show this, to demonstrate this as a scriptural truth, he quotes from Hosea chapter 1 and that covenant which God made with his people in Hosea chapter 2. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. That's a direct quotation from Hosea chapter 1. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. So Paul takes that prophecy of Hosea and he applies it to the Gentiles and he says the Gentiles were lo Ami and lo Ruhama in the Old Testament period. But they are now Ruhama and Ami. They are the fulfillment of that prophecy of Hosea chapters 1 and 2. 
And he takes other prophecies from the Old Testament and does the same thing with them. Verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. And you say, well, that's about Israel. No, it's not. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. These prophecies that we would take as being about Israel are about the Gentiles, the gathering in of the Gentiles. They are those who were lo-ami and lo-ruhama and become ami and ruhama, my people and those who have obtained mercy. First Peter chapter 2 also makes reference to this uh, word of God through Hosea in chapter 10, but we will begin in chapter 2 verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So this is also prophecy Uh, a word of God which takes the prophecy of Hosea to be about Christians of both Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament period. That prophecy then in Hosea is prophecy of the New Covenant. We turn then for the second part of our study this afternoon to Malachi 3 verse 1. Now, Um, In order to get some background on this, we're going to, first of all, point to uh, the other uses of the word covenant in the prophecy of Malachi, and they're all found in chapter 2. First of all, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, God speaks of his covenant with Levi. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. And he continues to describe this covenant and the working of this covenant in the tribe of Levi. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Just note that word messenger and hold it in your mind for a few minutes until we can come back to it. But let's notice here then that this covenant with Levi is the choosing of Levi to be the tribe that served in the temple and the tabernacle. 
And one of the purposes of God's choosing them was their instruction of the people in the law. The law of truth was found was in his mouth, injustice was not found on his lips. He turned many away from iniquity. This is we we might call it a sub covenant of the covenant of the Lord with his people at Mount Sinai. And the purpose was of course their service to the people as they uh, worked in the tabernacle. But then, in verse 8, God accuses them of corrupting this covenant. You have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And he pronounces judgment on them in verse 9. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. God made a covenant with them. They broke that covenant. God brought judgment on them. So the covenant with Levi is the first of the covenants referred to in the prophecy of Malachi. Chapter 2 verse 10 refers to a different covenant. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? by profaning the covenant of the fathers. And this is a reference to the covenant of God with Israel at Mount Sinai. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. And of course, the point here is that in that covenant which the Lord made with Israel at Sinai, he forbade them to marry heathen wives. That was part of his covenant. They had to take their wives from the people of Israel. And he forbade them to take heathen wives, Deuteronomy 7, because if they took heathen wives, those wives would turn their hearts away from him and they would begin to worship the gods of the nations in whose land they were living which is exactly what happened, of course. Judah, therefore, also committed treachery against the covenant of the Lord with them at Sinai by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. There's transgression of that covenant at Sinai. That's the second covenant that's mentioned here. The third covenant that's mentioned in the prophecy of Malachi is the covenant of marriage. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So he refers also to that covenant of marriage, and he says, not only did the people of Judah marry the daughters of foreign gods, but they were treacherous to the wives that God had given them from among their own people. They were divorcing those wives in favor of taking wives from the daughters of foreign gods. They were transgressing that covenant as well. So those are three different covenants that appear in this context. But our interest is particularly in yet another covenant that's mentioned in the prophecy of Malachi, the one that's mentioned in chapter 3, verse 1. In order to understand that prophecy in chapter 3, verse 1, we have to go back to chapter 2, verse 17. The chapter breaks here are bad again. 
the chapter break should be before chapter 2, verse 17, not at chapter 3, verse 1, where we find it. And there, in chapter 2, verse 17, God accuses his people, You have wearied the Lord with your words. And the people respond with doubting questions. Yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? The people can't imagine that they have wearied the Lord. The Lord explains himself then, in that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. The people are saying, Well, if he's a God of justice, if he's a God of righteousness, why is it that he treats the wicked so well? Why is it that he delights in the wicked? And so their final question is, Where is the God of justice? We want to see that the Lord really is a God of justice. And it's in chapter 3, verse 1, then, that the Lord answers that question. Where is the God of justice? He is coming. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there are two messengers mentioned here. There's my messenger in the first line of the verse. Behold, I send my messenger. And then there's the messenger of the covenant a little bit later in that verse. There are two different uh, messengers. But let's begin then with that word messenger. There's a lot of playing with that word messenger here in the prophecy of Malachi. Remember that I asked you to keep in mind the reference to the priests as the messengers of the Lord in chapter 2. They are messengers. And so we may take it here in chapter 3, verse 1, that first of all, he's referring to the priests. I send my messenger, that is, I send a priestly messenger. Secondly, that name, that word, my messenger, is the word in Hebrew, Malachi. He's playing also with that name, Malachi, which means my messenger. So there's a a reference to a priestly messenger. There's a a reference to the prophet Malachi. And then we understand that ultimately this passage refers to John the Baptist, who prepares the way before the Lord in his coming. Mark chapter 1 verse 2 talks about this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That's a direct quote from Malachi 3 verse 1. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. So this is a reference to John the Baptist. As Mark points out in the verse immediately following, verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So you get a lot of play with that word messenger in Malachi 3 verse 1, but ultimately it's a reference to John the Baptist himself. He is the Lord's messenger to prepare the way before him. 
But there's a second messenger then who follows the the lead uh, of this first messenger. And he is called the messenger of the covenant. And this messenger of the covenant is identified with the Lord himself. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Note some things about this messenger. First, he comes to the temple, to his temple. The Lord comes to his own temple. He also comes as a priest then. Secondly, note that this is the messenger whom they sought and whom in whom they delight. The Lord whom you seek will come, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Thirdly, note that this messenger does not come with the joyful news which the people wanted and expected. But who, verse 2, can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He's coming, God says, with judgment, not as you expect. And that gives to the words whom you seek and in whom you delight in verse 1 an ironic twist. The people say, where is the God of justice? Let him come. God says he's coming. And when he comes, you won't be happy. He's going to be like refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts." He's going to come with purifying fire. He's going to come with judgment. He's going to come with the curses of the covenant, as noted in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and following. He is the messenger of the covenant who's coming with judgment. That messenger of the covenant is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is called here the messenger of the covenant because he brings the word of the covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He brings the covenant word. He is the covenant word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He fulfills the covenant of the Lord with his people, all those Old Testament covenants. So he's the messenger of the covenant par excellence. He is the messenger of the covenant who brings to fulfillment all the promises of the Old Testament. 
He comes to the temple of God as a priest to offer himself as a sacrifice, but also to judge. He did that uh, twice in his ministry. He went to the temple. He found in the temple buyers and sellers, and he overthrew their tables and drove them out of the temple. But that was just a picture of what he's doing through all of his work in Old and New Testaments. He is purifying the sons of Levi. So, this is Christ coming as the messenger of the covenant. Christ coming as judge in judgment. Christ coming also to purify, so that the sons of Levi may bring an offering in righteousness and make the offering of Judah and Jerusalem again pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. That purifying of the sons of Levi is the establishment of the new priesthood in the New Testament, to which Peter also refers in 1 Peter chapter 2. We read it a few minutes ago. We'll read it again now. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were not a people, you are now the people of God. You had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. You have become a royal priesthood to offer acceptable sacrifices in the temple of God, that is, in the church of God in the New Testament. Christ makes this new priesthood by purifying the sons of Levi. So that's the new covenant again. The new covenant coming by means of the messenger of the covenant who brings judgment on the sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers and who purifies the sons of Levi, the priesthood whom God appoints in the New Testament or the New Covenant. So that concludes our study of the New Covenant in the Old Testament. And what I'd like to do at this point is just kind of sum up a little bit. As we've been studying this uh, idea of the covenants in the Old Testament, I've selected Old Testament passages that mention the word covenant. But there are many more passages in the Old Testament that do not mention the word covenant, but use the language of the covenant. That promise, I will be your God and you will be my people, is a promise you find referred to many, many, many times in the Old Testament. The promises multiply you as the sand of the sea, the promise of the land, and so on. These are promises that keep recurring. The promise of the land, for example, you can find in Psalm 37, which is not really a a psalm about the covenant or about the covenant people, we would say, and yet it talks about the inheriting of the land. In fact, there's so much uh, reference to the covenant in the Old Testament that we have to call Old Testament history covenantal history. It's the history of the covenant God with his covenant 
people. That idea of the covenant so permeates the Old Testament that you can't understand the Old Testament without reference to this idea of the covenant. If you don't get hold of this idea of the covenant and the continuity of the covenant in the Old Testament, then you're going to miss the significance altogether of the Old Testament. It's why we call it Old Testament. That's just a a word that's equivalent to covenant. We can call it just as well the Old Covenant as the Old Testament. It is all about that Old Covenant of God with his people. But it's also, as we've seen, as we've looked at that, about the New Covenant, because it all points forward to the covenant in Christ. As we've looked at these covenants, then, in the Old Testament, we've seen that there's progression. There are many covenants, God's covenant with Adam and Eve, God's covenant with Noah, God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, God's covenant with David, God's new covenant spoken of in the prophets, especially Jeremiah chapter 31. There are many covenants, but they're really all one covenant. And they're all one because as God makes these new covenants, he shows to his people that he's fulfilling the old covenants. So he makes the promise to Abraham, I will make your seed as numerous as the sand of the sea. And that promise is fulfilled in part in Israel's multiplication in the land of Egypt. And you can do that with all the other promises. The the promises that are made in the older covenants are fulfilled in part anyway in the newer covenants. Those newer covenants also add new promises to the old promises. And those new promises then are in turn fulfilled in uh, later covenants so that you get this constantly building, this crescendoing of the work of God throughout the Old Testament period, as he continues his work with his covenant people, as he fulfills his purposes, as he establishes and forms for for himself a people who will be faithful to him. Old covenants fulfilled and new covenants, new covenants adding new promises and fulfilling old promises, and all the covenants pointing forward to Christ, in whom all those promises are fulfilled. He is the seed of the woman, promised to Adam and Eve, the seed of Abraham, as Galatians 3 verse 16 teaches us, and the seed of David, as Matthew 1 teaches us. He is God with us, in whom God becomes our God, and we his people. He is the beginning of the new creation. He is the one in whom we are justified by faith, as Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15, and in whom all the Old Testament saints were justified by faith in the sacrifices, those promises of Christ's coming. He is the one who circumcises our hearts. He is the mediator who replaces Moses and is much better than he Hebrews chapter 3. He is the high priest who takes Aaron's place. He is the Lamb of God, the atoning sacrifice, and our Passover. 
He is the captain of our salvation, like Joshua, that's in Hebrews chapter 2, who leads us into the promised land. He is the king who conquers our enemies, rules us by grace, and establishes us in the city of God. He is the temple, the man of rest like Solomon, the covenant of the Gentiles, as we read in Isaiah, the husband of his people, the shepherd of his sheep. He is all these things, and he is all these things because in him is the embodiment of God's covenant with his people. He carries out all that God had been talking about to his people throughout the whole Old Testament period. He brings covenant history to its climax. And he continues to do so now. As we, as Gentile Christians, added to the people of God in the, from the Old Testament, serve him, are his covenant people, and preach the gospel to the nations. Christ is working out the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God. And all of those promises will have their final realization in the new heavens and the new earth, of which he is the beginning. So this new covenant is a new covenant in this sense, that it is new in its administration, that it is new in the fact that it is fulfilled by the working of Christ through his Spirit, that it is new in that it is the realizing of all that was merely by promise in the Old Testament. But it is not new in its promises. The promises remain the same. The promises do not change. Everything stays exactly as it was as far as the promises are concerned. The promises are simply being fulfilled. What's different is the administration. The administration is no longer through the law, as we read in 2 Corinthians 3, but it is through the Spirit. And the administration, and this new administration, gives us the reality to which all the old covenants promised, to which all the old covenants pointed, rather. So what we have then, if we look at the history of the world, not just the history of Israel in the Old Testament, but the history of the world in both Old and New Testaments, is a covenant-making God gathering for himself a covenant people, making for himself a new people out of the fallen human race, and forming and shaping that people to become the inheritors of the everlasting kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth, which were promised in the covenant with Noah. This is a a continuous history, then, that comes to its climax, its ultimate goal, in Christ's second coming and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, and the perfection of the covenant people and their relationship with their ever-faithful covenant-keeping God. This is why I cannot accept premillennialism, dispensationalism, postmillennialism, messianic Judaism, or any of those other ideas which give to the Jews special place in the purposes of God, 
or which uh, seek some kind of at least temporary earthly kingdom of Christ. Everything that Christ is doing ultimately is heavenly. And he seeks no earthly kingdom. His kingdom as it exists here on earth even now is essentially a heavenly kingdom and the beginning of that new and everlasting kingdom which he will make perfect in the new heavens and the new earth. Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant of God. Christ is the covenant of God, the messenger of the covenant and the reality of all the promises of God. May God bless you with his word.